So for those of you who haven't met me, my name's Eric Gonzalez. I'm humbled by the fact that I get to be on the, the teaching team here at LifeSpring Bible Church. So I grew up in Los Angeles, where my family was part of a Spanish-speaking Pentecostal church. So that's where I grew up. That's my background. We can go out for lunch sometime, and I can tell you the journey between there and, and now. This is a, a picture of the storefront property where we used to have service. So got there in 1979 when I was three years old, and I think we moved out sometime in the early 90s, 1990. There's a lot of memories there. One of them is a Spanish song that I want to sing for you. These are the words, and translated. Te alabarán, oh Jehová, todos los reyes, todos los reyes de la tierra, porque han oído los dichos de tu boca, y cantarán de los caminos de Jehová, porque la gloria de Jehová es grande, porque Jehová es perfecto en sus caminos, porque Jehová atiende al humilde, mas mira de lejos al altivo. And you would have heard it just like that because we didn't have a lot of talent in our church. <laughs> <laughs> The song was essentially the words verbatim from Psalm 138 there on the right. It sounds better in Spanish because it actually rhymes. <laughs> I was thinking about this song this week as I thought back to my first experience of fasting, which was in that church, the picture you just saw. We were praying for a new building, and we eventually moved into a new building, much like we did with this family back in the fall, right? This uh, next picture here is a picture of the facility that we finally moved into. And that was the, the church that I spent my high school years in. During the search for the new building, a fast was proclaimed in the church. There were some business dealings related to this property that we were praying through as a church. I was about 12 or 13 years old, and I, I accepted this challenge to fast. I remember two things about this time. I don't remember a lot of the details, but I do remember wanting the challenge because I wanted to see if I could go without eating and what would that be like. And I wanted to pray, but it was more about the challenge for me at the time. And then I, I remember being very hungry. I don't remember if it was one or two days, but I went the whole time just drinking water and I was thinking about food the whole time. I wasn't thinking about God all that much. And so I decided to reward myself at the end of this fasting experience with this. <laughs> the Carl's Jr. Southwestern Bacon Cheeseburger. <laughs> and that became a tradition for me in my high school years. When, when I think I fasted maybe a handful of times, four or five times during my high school years. And this was generally what it was about, getting to the end and being rewarded with that. Not very spiritual. <laughs> so today we're going to talk a bit about fasting. We're continuing our series in Mark learning about Jesus, the servant king, and what he had to say about fasting, but more importantly, the kingdom of God. As we've gone through the book of Mark in the last few weeks, Greg's pointed out how the Pharisees missed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was constantly giving them hints and clues to who he is and to the kingdom of God, and he's giving us the same clues today. So don't miss what Jesus is saying to them and what he's saying to us. So if you could open your Bibles to Mark 2, 18 through 23, or 22, 18 through 22. Oh, kids, 
can be released if they haven't already. Sorry. <laughs> Just caught up in the moment there, worshiping. Forgot about that. So Mark 2, 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and, the, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Let's pray. Lord, I know you have a lot that you want to say on this passage, and I pray that you would speak it. That it would be your words flowing through me, not mine. Thank you for what you've shown me through this experience of preparing for this, and I pray that I would be able to do it justice and convey your heart to your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's quite a bit here. I'm excited to unpack this with you. And it's not about just about fasting. We're going to talk about that a little bit. I'm excited about what Jesus is telling us in this. Okay, I've got to contain my excitement and, and get going here. So John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. What does that mean? Why were they fasting and what is fasting anyway? Fasting is simply the voluntary abstinence from food. In today's Christian context, it's typically for spiritual purposes, but as we'll discover, it's not necessarily a spiritual act. For example, I have to fast every year for my flight physical. I'm a pilot, and every year I have to go to the dock, and they take blood work, and I have to fast for 12 hours before they can draw that blood. That's not a spiritual, nothing spiritual about that. In fact, I was, as I was researching fasting, I came across this uh, TED talk, TEDx talk, by a doctor named Matt Matson from Johns Hopkins University. He's a professor of neuroscience. And he recently published a TEDx talk that talks about the benefits of intermittent fasting. He promotes, if you could throw that slide up there, Nate, uh, among other options, a five and two day fast. So basically the idea is you eat normally five days a week and then for two days, you reduce your caloric intake. You essentially fast. You drink juice and, and stuff. And what he's found is this has a lot of benefit to your body physically. So things like uh, your body cleanses itself of impurities. The glycogen or the excess sugar that's stored in your liver gets a chance to, to be uh, purged. And then this really blew me away. He says that the brain sees this as a challenge and makes neurochemical changes in the brain to improve cognitive function. So what happens is protein is increasing in the brain, which promotes neuron growth and strengthens your synapses. So what that means is you're able to think better and think more clearly once your body gets adjusted to this. Because when you start it, it's obviously going to go into shock. Just like when you try to hit the weights and you go all out, you're going to hurt the next day. It's a similar kind of thing. Your body has to adjust. But when it does, you're able to think more clearly. Pretty interesting. And that'll, that'll come up later here. In a spiritual context, you can also fast more than just food. You can fast certain types of food, like coffee, caffeine, uh, meat, sweets. There's a thing called a Daniel fast that I've done before. It actually makes you feel real good where you don't use animal products. 
Maybe you fast something like exercise, hobbies, electronic devices, TV, tablets, Facebook, etc. The Apostle Paul even talks about husband and wives abstaining from intimacy, as I'll call it, for the purposes of prayer. But for with the context of what we're talking about today, we're going to talk about abstaining from food. Fasting was a common human experience in Bible times. No one knows when it started because it was just something you did in ancient Near East cultures and even to today. It was usually associated with mourning or death or loss, practiced during urgent or desperate times. And it's really not that different today, right? So I remember when I was in college, uh, I lost a buddy named Dan Jenkins. Dan Jenkins was, uh, he wasn't that close of a friend, he was acquaintance. We had uh, the same circle of friends. And I had just come off of a spring break trip with mutual friends and we found out that Dan was killed in a, in a mountain climbing accident. His equipment failed and he ended up getting killed. And it shocked us because he was 21 years old, young Christian guy, full of life, and we were just shocked that he was, his life was taken. And I remember that night, even though we were excited off of a really neat spring break experience, none of us felt like eating that night. I remember walking off by myself and just praying God out as this stuff happened. So we fasted, not intentionally. It was just a natural thing out of sorrow. And then I was also reminded of uh, when we put our dog down, Jake, uh, several years ago. Aurelia was nine years old, and Jake was 15, and it was time for him to go. And uh, we gave him his last meal of steak before we took him to the vet. And we didn't like that feeling of him eating and didn't feel like eating. So... All that to say that fasting is just a natural extension of grief, mourning. In the Jewish context, John's disciples would have fasted as a way to show repentance, seeking forgiveness of sin. A great example of this is when David fasts for his child. So he and Bathsheba uh, committed adultery, and the fruit of, of that was a child that God was going to take away as punishment. And David fasted for that child out of his repentance for what he had done. So Jesus in his day, uh, Jewish men would have fasted for the coming Messiah. Just like Anna the prophetess, who was fasting and praying for the coming Messiah, for the redemption of Jerusalem when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple. It was a common practice for Jews to fast in anticipation of the kingdom of God. It was also an act of ceremonial worship. So there was a command in Leviticus for the Hebrews to practice on the Day of Atonement a humbling. And fasting was typically associated with that. The Pharisees would have, just like John's disciples, would have fasted for the loss of Israel's prominence, for the, for the coming Messiah. It would have been considered a practical way to seek God's counsel, seek his presence. We kind of still do that today. But the Pharisees kind of twisted it. They would have used it as, to their advantage. Because just like I just talked about, about the fasting twice a week, the Pharisees actually did that. They had a practice that uh, you can look up in Luke 18.10, where they fasted on Thursdays and Mondays. And the tradition was that Moses went up to Sinai, uh, Mount Sinai, on a Thursday, and 40 days later he came down on a Monday. And so the Pharisees adopted this practice of fasting twice a week. The religious routine of fasting as part of their rhythm was actually a fleshly thing. Because if you go back to that research that I was just telling you about from Dr. Matson, they were adding to the, to the idea that they already felt like they were superior than the common sinners. Now they had a practice that made them think more clearly, made their bodies feel more healthy. They were feeding their flesh in that practice. 
So it was less about the repentance and humility and more about the feeling superior and a status symbol of I'm righteous and I want people to know it. Contrary to these reasons here, these traditional historic reasons. Fasting is supposed to be about humility, about seeking God's presence. A form of grief or mourning which leads to repentance, the asking of forgiveness of sin, an act of worship to seek God's presence and his counsel. Essentially, it was about repenting and believing. Where have we seen that before? Just like that, right? A Kairos moment happens, so the temple is lost. God, what are you saying in that? We need to repent, turn from the way we're doing things, believe what God is calling us to do, and then follow that. Pretty cool how that plays out, huh? But back to the text here. Why did Jesus, ask, why did Jesus get asked the question about fasting from, his, from the John's disciples and from the Pharisees? Which is interesting, too. There's two, two ways to look at this. So in Matthew 9, you get the same scripture that we just read in Mark, and it's from the perspective, from, from that standpoint, it looks like it was John's disciples that were asking the question, Jesus, why aren't you fasting? In Luke, you get the same description of, of what went down, but it kind of alludes to the fact that the Pharisees were the ones doing the questioning. So in Mark, it summarizes it as both. It's not really specific. But by this time, John the Baptist was in prison. So John the Baptist's disciples were kind of leaderless, in a sense. So when they go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? I believe it's a legitimate question. They were like, what's going on here, Jesus? Normally we fast and even the Pharisees do it. Why aren't you doing it? We don't, we don't get it. And what's Jesus' response to them? He says, he uses intentional specific language about the bridegroom, right? In verse 20. If you look in John 3, 29 and 30, John the Baptist uses that reference of bridegroom to refer to Jesus. So he's intentionally using that metaphor because Jesus is saying, I'm the real deal. I'm the Messiah. The whole reason you've been fasting is right here. And they would have responded to that. He's essentially saying, follow me. I'm the Messiah. I'm it. The mourning and the sorrow and the things that you've been fasting for, it's inconsistent with the fact that I'm here. There's fullness of joy in my presence, as it says in Psalm 1611. There's no need for fasting. And then he goes on to foreshadow his death, right? Where he says, there'll be an appropriate time to fast when, when I'm taken from you. The Pharisees, on the other hand, like we've seen before, they totally missed that Jesus was and is the Messiah. So their, their questioning was less of really wanting to know and more of a, a digging. Like, hey, these guys fast and we fast. What's your deal? We, we, don't, we don't like the way you're doing things and we don't trust you. That was kind of their take. They were still trying to figure out who Jesus is and was, and that's why they were probing. And it was why Jesus critiqued their traditions and he contrasted their traditions with God's law. And this is what's meant by that example of the unshrunken cloth and old garment and the new wine and old wineskins. Let me read that again here. If I can find my place here. So no one sews, so he answers their question with this. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Any seamstresses here who have ever done that? Anybody? I know my daughter's a little bit of a seamstress. If you put a patch 
a new patch on old pants, when you put it in the wash, what happens to it? It shrinks, right? It's going to tear it. And then when you pour new wine into old wineskins, that's a reference we don't get. So fortunately, yesterday, we had a, a teaching on this. It was awesome. And so I'm going to steal a little bit of that and, and explain this process to you. And I even looked it up today, uh, this morning. I was looking for a video for this. And the video was kind of crude, so I wasn't going to show it. But the wineskins, when you think of a wineskin, what do you think of? Do you think of a little water pouch, like a Daniel Boone type thing? That's not what it was. It was a goat skin. So it was about this, you know, how big is a goat? About this big. So they'd cut off the legs, they'd cut off the head, they'd cut off the tail, and they'd skin it, and you just have the skin. They turn it upside down, they tie off the loose ends, and the whole skin is sealed. And so they'd pour the wine in there, and let me back up. So the, the wine is, comes from grapes, right? So the grapes are smashed. Turns out that there's yeast on the skin of the grapes. When you smash it, the juice is full of sugar that the yeast then eats, and that produces the fermentation process, right? That fermentation process, an offshoot of that is CO2, carbon dioxide. I had to get that right. Monoxide's poisonous. Carbon dioxide is produced. And so that's why when they would put the, the wine that's fermenting into the skin, it would swell. So in today's uh, distilleries, you have one-way check valves that pump out the CO2 gas and everything's good, but back then they didn't have that. They had this skin that was tied off. So the, the tied off portions, you know, the, the gas floats up and it would bubble out through the, the tied off legs of the skin. And it, but as it's doing that, the skin is expanding, right? And so that's why at the end of the fermentation process of two to four months or whatever it was, the skin was completely expanded and it lost its elasticity. And so if you tried to put new wine into that wine skin that just expanded, there's nowhere for it to go. It would literally burst and you'd lose the wine and you'd bust the skin. So that's what was meant. That's what Jesus was talking about when he was saying that the, you can't put new wine into old wine skins. And the idea behind that why was Jesus saying that? Because to take the, the, the old wine, or, or new wine, the new thing that he was doing, the new covenant that he was bringing, to put that into old traditions and old ways of doing things, the rules and all the things that they were adhering to, that wasn't going to work. And the thing about it is they were missing it. They were so focused on the rules and all of the tradition they were missing the fact that all of that was pointing to him, was pointing to Jesus. So check out these scriptures. These are just a few. You can, gosh, you can go through the whole Bible and see how it all points to Jesus. These are just a few scriptures that I found on fasting that point to Christ. So God's command to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's where it all started in the garden. They had the whole garden and God tells them, don't eat from that tree, abstain from that tree, fast from that tree. And Adam and Eve couldn't do it. They fail. Moses fasts for 40 days on Mount Sinai to obtain the law from God. A foreshadowing of Christ who's going to fast for 40 days in the wilderness and be the fulfillment of that law. As part of the law, we talked about the Day of Atonement briefly in Leviticus. And we talked about how that means to humble yourself. In the Jewish tradition, that word that some people take as a commandment to fast is actually just a word that means to deny yourself, to afflict yourself, to humble yourself. I think in the NIV, you'll see fasting in the footnote, and in the ESV translation, it'll say afflict yourselves. But the point being that 
the Day of Atonement was pointing to Christ, who is our atonement. That was the whole point. Elijah was sustained for 40 days on one miraculously provided meal, and then he would pass the mantle to Elisha. And as we know, John the Baptist was compared to Elijah. So that was a foreshadowing of the transition from Elijah to Elisha was a comparison of John the Baptist to Jesus, a passing of the mantle from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. After the uh, Hebrews were exiled and later when they lost the temple, fasting in Judaism became associated with the destruction of the temple. As we talked about before, they were mourning the loss of the greatness of the Israelite society and, and they were longing for the restoration of it through the Messiah. The new temple that was being erected was Jesus. He called himself the, the new temple, right? It would be destroyed in three days and three days I'll lift it up. And then later on in the New Testament, that same temple, his body is us the church of Christ. The body of Christ is a church, right? And then this one really blew me away. So Jesus is currently undergoing a fast in heaven. Did you guys realize that? So he says that I will not, when we take communion, we always talk about it, how I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until you are with me in your kingdom. And I discovered that that's a Nazaritic fast. So if you look in number six, it's a fast that Nazarites had. It's one that Samson was supposed to adhere to. He was a Nazarite. He was supposed to keep his hair long. He was not supposed to drink fermented drink, meaning he couldn't drink alcohol or wine. And there was one more thing that he wasn't supposed to do. He wasn't supposed to touch dead bodies. Kind of weird, right? What does that have to do with anything? Well, let me read it to you, number six. It says, Throughout the period of this separation of the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. The symbol of his separation to God is on his head. All of that was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the author of life. He raised people from the dead. He's the giver of life. He, he was raised from the dead. That's the point. That's what it was pointing to. It wasn't about not touching dead bodies. It was about pointing to Jesus. And yet the Pharisees missed it. They were so consumed by the intricacies of the law and the rules and the regulations that were supposed to point to Jesus that they missed it. They totally missed it. Jesus was telling them, you're focusing on the wrong thing. The Holy Spirit throughout the whole entire Old Testament was pointing to the coming Messiah, but they were so caught up in the details that they were missing the fact that it was happening right in front of them. It's like Greg says when he gets up here. Don't miss this now, right? <laughs> Don't miss it. It's not about the rules. It's not about don't eat, don't touch, don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't go the girls, with girls who do. That's not what it's about. It's about the relationship with the Savior. And guess what? This is what really humbled me this week. Sometimes we're not that different from the Pharisees in the modern church, are we? Last night, or last week, Greg talked about how Pharisees think of themselves more highly than the sinners, the common folk. Do we see ourselves as better than our neighbors? rather than loving them as ourselves? Do we see ourselves as Christians as better than, well, there's a whole list of things that I wrote here. Democrats, socialists, communists, capitalists, terrorists, otherists, the homeless, the addicted, the lost, even other Christians and denominations? Because when we do that, we're being hypocrites. We're elevating disputable matters, details, personal preferences, above the importance of what God is trying to do with us. When we elevate things like 
This is going to start hitting a little close to home. Homeschooling, gluten-free food, self-subsistence, boycotting R-rated movies, supporting Republican candidates, our ways of doing worship or ministry, basically anything else that in and of themselves are not necessarily bad, but when we start to put them above the gospel, we're starting to become like the Pharisees. Are we counting ourselves righteous by our actions and our beliefs or by Christ's righteousness? Because if we're not, we're missing the mark, just like the Pharisees did. Are we missing the same thing? We can miss it. So Greg and I, here's where I'm going to go off script, Greg. So (laughs) Greg and I, uh, for the last couple days, were at a conference, a 3DM conference, talking about discipleship. And I think both of us were really struck. I think that's a fair thing to say, right? Both of us were really struck by, is it, well, let me talk about me. I won't speak for Greg. For me, am I building my kingdom or am I building God's kingdom? That's the really big takeaway that I took. If you can throw up the slide, the covenant and kingdom slide here. This is the big focus that uh, we were looking at this week. 80% we learned this weekend, 80% of issues in the church are related to our identity and who we are in the Father. We don't believe that we're saved by grace. We don't believe that we have authority in our Father the King for whatever reason, wounding, sin, things that have hurt us in the past. When we humble ourselves, and that's really the whole point of fasting, when we humble ourselves underneath the identity of who God has called us to be, the authority that he's given us, then we're able to go out and obey in power. What does that look like? What does that look like practically? Last night, uh, after the conference, um, a friend of ours, Jay Pullins, who was kind of the, the lead guy putting this thing together with the team from out of town. He had some folks over at his house kind of as a wrap-up party, and my family and I got to go attend. And there was a couple there that wasn't part of the conference, a couple named Lance and, and Karina. Uh, Lance uh, lives in Kotzebue, Alaska. He's a, a Christian man. He's an Eskimo. Some of you know him. Um, he has got an amazing testimony, amazing story. And he was sharing some of the things that God is doing in Kotzebue through their lives. And it was awesome because the team that had come in from out of town, they were most, yeah, they were all from California, had come in to share with churches how to do discipleship and how to live in community, how to do missional community, uh, stuff that we're trying to do as a church here in LifeSpring. We're trying to move in that direction. And here were these practitioners, if I could use that, that term, who were teaching how to do this and then here comes Lance and his wife, and they're living it. They're living out in the bush in Kotzebue, and they have people that are living with them for years on end, Inupiat Indians who are coming from, or I'm sorry, Inupiat natives who are coming from uh, broken homes, coming from drug addiction, from alcoholism, all the things that are so prevalent in the bush, sexual addiction, all kinds of horrible things. And they're inviting people into their homes, And they're being saved. And it's taking a long time. I mean, sometimes the process is four, five, six years for somebody to get healed from all of that wounding. And it's happening. And he was sharing a story with me about how this this huge, big rock of a man, you know, this massive Indian guy who was adamantly against Christians, how he came to faith in Christ at one of the, the meetings that they had. 
And I was just, <laughs> Jake was getting tired and we were wanting to go home, but I, it, I was just riveted by the stories of what God is doing in this family's life. And this morning, as I was thinking about all those stories, it really struck me, <laughs> the, the, uh, the metaphor that I used that I shared with my wife was, uh, I'm a basketball player and I think I've got some skills. I played high school basketball, but if I was to play against Stephen Curry or LeBron James or something like that, there would be no contest. You know, that, that's a different level of game. And I felt like that's what the Lord was showing me. Like, here's me thinking that I've got game. And then I meet Lance, and he's like the LeBron James of what God is doing in his life. And it showed me, whoa, I've got no game. <laughs> and I feel like that's what the Lord is, is sharing with us. Not that we don't have game, but that he's inviting us to raise our game, to go to a different level of what he's calling us to do. And we have to be ready for it. We have to be ready for the stretching that's going to come because he's going to pour new wine into our family. Greg and I were talking about how, how, how old is our church now? What, three, four months old now? As we've changed our name to LifeSpring. So LifeSpring as a church has only been alive for about three or four months. We're still developing our identity. And that's going to be shaped and formed in the next, in the next couple years. And what do we want that to look like? Are we going to be held back by the old traditions and ways of doing things? Are we going to be held back by even the Sunday format? You know, we sing a few songs, somebody gets up here and lectures. Is that really what God's calling us to do? Or are we going to be a family on mission going forward? So if we want to be that family, it's got to start with us. So that song that I sang for you, Psalm 138, verse 6, says, For the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the humble, but the proud he knows from afar. God is close to the brokenhearted. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God's really been humbling me over the last few days. And uh, a couple weeks ago, that verse really struck me. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. There's something about humility that's a key to God's heart. And when we fast, it's not the fasting. It's not like fasting is this magical trinket. That's not what it is. It's about humbling ourselves before God. When we don't humble ourselves and we're proud, God rejects that. So when you're proud, he's rejecting you. The God of the universe. That's not a position I want to be in where God's rejecting me. Because he gives grace to the humble. And grace is the only thing that keeps us from sinning. So when he takes that grace away from you because you're being proud, that's why pride comes before the fall. Because he's removed his grace and you're on your own, buddy. So when we're proud, we're going to fall. But when we're humble, he gives us more grace and more grace and more grace. When we humble our hearts before the Lord, through fasting or otherwise, our prayers become more effective. Not because of the act, but because of our humility. So as the team comes forward, I've got a couple questions for you. Thanks, by the way, Mitch and Emily. That's an awesome job of worship this morning. Are you, are you humbling yourself before God, family? For me, am I building my kingdom or am I surrendering my rights for a greater kingdom? 
If, if Eric Gonzalez tries to build a kingdom on earth, it's going to pale in comparison to God's kingdom, is it not? Just think of the richest person on earth. Bill Gates, he's not the richest. I think there's somebody richer than him, but he's pretty close. Guy's got a lot of stuff. He even does a lot of good things. He's a philanthropist. But his kingdom still pales in comparison to God's kingdom. Are you confident in your own strength or do you see a desperate need for God's grace? What is God doing with our family? And will we go there with him? So let's pray. Lord, I'm humbled by the things that you've showed me. It's literally brought me to tears this weekend. And um, I pray, Lord, that what you're showing me, that you would reveal to this family in the way that would get their attention, that they would have their own individual Kairos moments, Lord, that would grab their attention, and that they would ask the question, what are you saying, God? And then we'd all be able to ask as a family, what are we going to do about it as you move us into the place that you want us to be? It's going to take humility, Lord. It's going to take surrendering, submitting to you. And that might be hard, given our backgrounds, given our sin, given our pride. But Lord, I pray that you would continue to show patience with us, that you would continue to work on our hearts, that you would continue to bring healing to the wounds that are in our lives, that we would submit to you and you would take us where you want us to go, Lord God, that our identity, our authority would be found in you, our Father, our King, and that we would be obedient and show forth your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.